Welcome to one of the uh, penultimate sessions uh, at the Battle of Ideas 2017 um, called, as you, I presume you know as you turned up, um, Silicon Valley from Heroes to Zeros. Uh, my name is Paul Reeves. I'm a software developer. I work up at uh, the, uh, the kind of us two, hash us two Silicon Fen up in uh, Cambridge. Um, it's a bit smaller an affair. But anyway, I'm here to chair the, uh, the panel that we've got today. Um, I'm sure you pretty much all know the game now as far as we, we essentially have speakers start off. Uh, they'll speak for maybe four or five minutes, and then we'll, we're going to go straight out to the uh, audience to hear your um, comments and questions and uh, get the debate going then, I suppose. So what, what I'll do now is I'll just briefly introduce each of the speakers. I won't give a full biog. You can get that online or in the, um, in the program. And then we'll, uh, we'll start with, uh, Jay well, okay, I'll introduce them now. Basically, Jamie Bartlett, um, I, I guess a lot of you may well know um, the program he did early, uh, earlier in the year called uh, The Secrets of Silicon Valley on BBC Two, um, two uh, a two-part program that uh, was a really int good introduction to this, th th this subject. Um, then we'll have uh, Andrew Bernstein, from the Ayn Rand Institute, um, and, and Andrew has basically got a PhD in philosophy, and he's author, author of the Capitalist Manifesto, the historic, economic, and philosophic case for laissez-faire, and he's affiliated with the Ayn Rand Institute, who I should also mention are the session sponsor this afternoon, so we thank them for, for doing that. Um, then thirdly, we've got Lauren Ravazzi, Rizavi. Rizavi, sorry about that. I knew I'd get one thing. And she's, um, among other things, man managing director of Flibble, an award, and also an award-winning writer and consultant. And I also understand you're, you're quite an advocate of sort of freelance work in platforms for to allow people to work in more modern, flexible ways. And you also do journalism uh, um, coaching, I guess. Get, guess I call it coaching. Maybe. Okay, and then finally we've got uh, Daniel Benami, who's a journalist, a financial journalist, I, I gather, and but he's also, uh, as well as having spoken at the Battle of Ideas many times over the years, he's an author. Um, his most recent book is called Ferraris for All in Defence of Economic Progress, and uh, I think it was a few years before that you wrote a book, Cowardly Capitalism, mm -hmm. um, sort of back in the early 2000s, I think that was. Anyway, so we get started, um, and Jamie, if you could yeah. give us a five-minute introduction. You know yeah. all this. I'll, all right. I'll give you a warning after five minutes. I'll be less than five minutes. Right. Uh, I'll be very brief. Okay. Um, thank you for having me and for, for coming. And to me, the answer is yes, with some caveats. I mean, I spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley uh, for this BBC series. I wrote a book about the dark net as well, looking at the effect of technology on different subcultures. And Silicon Valley is, is an amazing place. I mean, it's very exciting, incredibly innovative and creative. And I think sometimes we, and I am guilty of this too, um, confuse Silicon Valley with a small number of large tech firms, when in fact there's so much more than that and so much interesting stuff going on as well. What I think has happened is most people from the big tech firms generally are extremely sort of well-minded, really do believe and optimistically in the technology that they build. They then get hold of loads and loads of venture capital, which creates absolutely unbelievable pressure to constantly grow all the time, which forces them to behave in ways that many of us might find slightly dubious or questionable. 
And so what I think has happened over the last, if you think back to the incredible optimism of the mid-90s, especially about how technology was going to improve the world, I think most of us would agree uh, that has been slightly disappointed and many people are beginning to wonder if in fact it's not heading in a good direction at all. I feel nowhere near as optimistic as I did back in the 90s about what technology was doing to society. And I think there are several reasons for that and, and why people are sort of waking up to this. Uh, it's about the incredible concentration of wealth and power and influence, some of which appears to be rather uh, unaccountable, particularly the transfer of economic power into political power. Um, of course, as we all repeatedly hear, what happens to our personal information in a predominantly ad-driven uh, model? Growing inequality, anybody that has been to San Francisco lately can see very starkly and visibly the possible effects of that, questionable tax affairs, and uh, as we saw in the case of Uber, dubious internal workings. Now, I, don't, I think that, in many sense, that's no different from any other companies. That's really the same as a lot of big businesses have operated. But the difference is that Silicon Valley always promised it was different, that it was better, that it wasn't like other companies, that it was in it for a social mission as well as an economic one. And so, in effect, by behaving the same as any other business, they're held to much higher standards and are therefore, un well, justifiably and understandably criticised more because we expect more of them. Now, I think some of that, some of the response that you've seen, is, is that we, we are going through the year of the tech lash, people really starting to turn against technology and really questioning its impact in society. And some of that's good. I think it's a useful check. But I'm worried that it's an incredibly emotional response. And there's no knowing where that ends up. Because as artificial intelligence in particular continues to grow in importance and all the trends that I talked about in the show and just now continue to grow, there will be more and more turbulence and frustration. And what worries me at the moment is that we are, going, we are in a position where we will start throwing out all the great benefits that technology can have as a result of these emotional fears and examples of bad practice. I genuinely think that we are sort of heading into a sort of new era of neo-Luddism about technology, and Silicon Valley companies can take some of the blame for that. But I think our emotional responses to it can take some of the blame for that. But I'm extremely worried because I, 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 I'm nervous about the fact that we are going to, all the wonderful things that could happen with artificial intelligence in particular are going to be lost because we're going to be, have fallen so out of love with technology that we're willing to throw it all out. That's great. Thanks, Jeremy. Uh, Andrew? Hi. Sorry, yes. Uh, oh, you started the trend off now. We have to do that every now. Well done, everybody. Okay. I was going to say clap everyone at the end, but now, no, feel free to small clap for every person. Thanks, Andrew. Hi. Can, can everybody hear me? Yeah. Okay. Like uh, Paul said, my, my degree's in philosophy, so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty low-tech guy. But... Uh, you know, I've come to, my, my daughter has, has taught me a lot. She's 14, so she's much more high-tech than I am, and she's, she's, uh, she's taught me uh, quite a bit. Uh, to me, uh, the real question should be about Silicon Valley, from heroes to even greater heroes, because uh, we know Silicon Valley's glorious history, that you help, helping spearhead the computer, smartphones, social media revolutions, as, as well as, as others. And today, whatever Silicon Valley's flaws, and most human beings are flawed, 
I don't, I don't want to say all, but there may be some people who aren't, but most, <laughs> most human beings, companies, governments, nations are flawed. But despite that, the innovate, innovativeness and development of, of life-enhancing technology uh, continues uh, in Silicon Valley, other places around the world too, but Silicon Valley is a, is a paradigm example. CRISPR, I think that's how you pronounce it, uh, yeah. gene, uh, gene editing you know, to, to alter patients' blood cells in order to kill cancer cells. Silicon Valley's in the, in the forefront of that. Autonomous cars, which, 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 which I love. I think when, when they get the kinks you know, worked out, I think it's going to make driving a lot safer because my guess is uh, self-driving cars probably won't drive drunk. You know, I mean, unless they get drunk on ethanol or you know, what, what, whatever. I think, you know, uh, interesting from what I understand from my little knowledge of technology that Detroit is actually ahead of Silicon Valley on, on this issue, that Ford and General Motors are actually more advanced. But there are Silicon Valley companies, of course, in the forefront of autonomous cars. Reusable rockets. You know, and Elon Musk, who to me is very mixed as, you know, as, as, as a supporter of independent entrepreneurs, because Elon Musk and uh, Tesla and SpaceX, on the one hand, is a visionary entrepreneur who claims we're going to Mars, we're going to be an interplanetary species within, you know, maybe not within my lifetime, but certainly within my, my child's lifetime. At the same time, he is an egregious suck-up to the government for, you know, for taxpayer <laughs> for taxpayer money. But anyway, I think uh, Elon Musk is doing some, re some really good work uh, at, at Tesla and uh, at, at, space, at SpaceX. The na nanotechnology field has potential to create you know, new materials and de uh, devices with a vast range of applicability, including to medicine and uh, biomaterial, biomaterial energy production. Don't ask me what any of this stuff means. <laughs> I don't know what it means. I just say it just sounds good. You know, I think it's, but, but, I, but I think there's, there's a lot of, I think there is a lot of potential. And, and biotech generally, not just CRISPR, but biotech, you know, and using the biotech companies that will, you know, l learn how to, the, the, for the body to use its own natural defenses against, uh, against diseases. Silicon Valley is still very much in the forefront of, of these kind of innovations and much more. So I think there are a couple of takeaways here uh, that I think we should celebrate. And I agree with you, Jamie, about the, the worries about privacy. You know, I think that, I think that, is, that is a legitimate concern. But I think generally we should celebrate the, the life-enhancing um, accomplishments of Silicon Valley. Uh, for, for example, last year I, I, I taught at the American University in Bulgaria. Uh, my daughter lives in Yonkers, New York. But thank God for FaceTime. You know, I was able, uh, you know, uh, an Apple product. I was able to face. We we both have iPhones. We were able to FaceTime. You know, every every day I could. could of course, there's a seven-hour time difference. When she got out of school at four o'clock in the afternoon, it was like eleven o'clock at night in Bulgaria. But I was able. But I was able to FaceTime with, with her. Uh, you know, anybody who has relatives or loved ones in various parts of the world, the the technology. In this, this case, it's an Apple product. Uh, but the, the technology here is is just. Uh, is so life enhancing, you know, and the uh, just the the, the 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 increased productivity in a, in, a, in in you know productivity and saving time uh, made possible by computers, smartphones, and, and and so on. So, you know, as a as a as a big Iron Rand supporter, my 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 all time favorite novel is The Fountainhead. You know, the story of Howard Rourke, the independent architect. I I think we should glorify the independent thinkers who under principles of individual rights and laissez-faire uh, guarantees or protects their right to, to, because Silicon Valley is relatively unregulated, 
uh, guarantees their right to think autonomously and that that right is protected by law. Independent thinkers who carry us forward are often persecuted. I mean, Socrates was executed for challenging the moral authority of the Athenian state. Copernicus wisely <laughs> refused to publish his theory in astronomy because he was afraid he would be brought down to the Inquisition. Uh, Galileo was brought before the Inquisition, of course, uh, and threatened with uh, torture. Ayn Rand herself had to flee from the Soviet Union, where she would have been you know, sent to a gulag for, for uh, writing her books in support of the independent mind. Uh, so uh, I think we need, we need to glorify these independent thinkers. And, and Silicon Valley, to a significant degree, for, again, whatever its flaws, is a hotbed of independent, innovative thinkers and entrepreneurs who, in Steve Jobs' immodest terms, uh, invent the future. He's talking about himself, of course. Uh, but, but notice the field, relatively unregulated. This is a triumph uh, of individual rights and, and, and with the closest, I think, to laissez-faire that, that we have. I think we can learn from this, apply this to other fields, and observe similar progress in, in, in any number of other fields and industries. No, I'm oh, done. Oh, that's great. Thank done. you. Everyone's coming under time. This is good. Uh, Lauren? Okay, so the idea that any one company from Silicon Valley or anywhere else holds an unstoppable monopoly over any sector and will forevermore, I think, is really false. And this enters into a lot of discussions around Silicon Valley and those sort of top tech companies that Jamie mentioned in, um, in his opening statement. In the world of technology, monopolies are very much temporary. Look at the rise and fall of Microsoft over the years. Consider how much Apple's iPhone X and iPhone 8 models are flopping right at this moment. These juggernaut companies are fighting battles to stay relevant um, and ahead on multiple fronts every single day. Technology moves so fast that staying one step ahead isn't even enough. Consumer expectation has never been as high. Big market-leading companies are continuously buying up smart startups for fear they'll be dethroned if they let them innovate, uh, not under their kind of umbrella. I think it's really, really easy to look at Google and to only see its faults and failures, but can we point to any other organization anywhere in the world, any government or non-profit even, that has done more to advance the opportunities and capabilities of people everywhere? What other force is changing the world, mostly for the better, on such a huge scale? With that recognition, however, there are still important questions that we should be asking, and which I'm sure we'll be discussing on the panel today. I think the majority of people see one of Google's biggest crimes as their tax avoidance in territories all over the world. And you know that's gotten a lot of publicity, so if you talk to people about the problems of Silicon Valley, I think this is something that comes up a lot. I don't actually agree with that being the, the biggest point we should be critiquing these big companies on at all. I think, if anything, these high-profile cases draw attention to tax loopholes that too many of our politicians have let slide for far too long. Um, and it's really not just Google or any other tech giant um, who are taking advantage of loopholes like that. There's an array of powerful and often invisible players who are trying to take advantage of these things too. Um, and I actually think shining a light on them uh, by these big companies sort of being caught out is doing quite a lot of good in terms of the kind of private, uh, public uh, conflict and tension, um, which I think is very healthy and, and good for society. Something I really believe she, more people should be concerned about, though, is their own personal data. 
In the new economy that's fast approaching, information about individuals is a powerful form of currency. And right now, we're all guilty of it. I certainly am. We tick boxes and allow cookies just to get the annoying pop-up off of the screen. Um, more awareness around who accesses, owns, and exploits our data is crucial. Um, it's a right to be defended like any other aspect of our identity and existence, this idea of being in control of our own data and understanding how it might be used. Unfortunately, at the moment, governments don't care much for data rights because right now they don't win much public attention. Now, Donald Trump may have uh, used Cambridge Analytica uh, to sort of get an advantage uh, in data terms in the last election, um, but actually the majority of voters don't care much for their own data at the moment. On this point, I think that Silicon Valley has an increasingly large amount to answer for um, and that citizens and authorities alike really need to be scrutinising them more in how they handle that data and the kind of norms that they're setting up for the rest of the world to follow. Um, nevertheless, I think that challenges like this shouldn't be allowed to stifle innovation. Um, and I think Silicon Valley has been the heart of progress for the past two decades in the sphere of technology. And for that, it should definitely be celebrated. Um, tomorrow, though, I predict Silicon Valley will face decreasing relevance as the next wave of innovation and disruption approaches from Asian and African cities like Bangalore, Shenzhen, Kigali, and Nairobi. Just like the companies it's given birth to, Silicon Valley will only hold its monopoly until the next players with bigger, shiny ideas take over. And I think that will prove to be a much more interesting conversation than anything that we're seeing right now. Until then, though, Silicon Valley still leads the world on innovation and transformation. And while that isn't without its hiccups, great change should not be avoided or rejected in favour of fear and in support of the status quo. Thank you. And finally, uh, we've, we've got Daniel. Okay, uh, thanks, Paul. Uh, I should say my main kind of intellectual preoccupation is understanding the debate about inequality and wealth, not specifically Silicon Valley, although obviously the Silicon Valley discussion is a significant part of that. But in the run-up to this discussion, uh, I've looked more closely at Silicon Valley, and I've really been shocked by quite how far it's gone in terms of the shift against Silicon Valley, and in that respect I very much agree with Jamie, I perhaps go even further, that it's not so much heroes to zeros, but heroes to negative numbers. So it's not that there's just been kind of, you know, it was really positive two years ago, and now it's entirely negative. There's been a long-term shift, and particularly over the last 18 months or so, a real incredible shift uh, against Silicon Valley. So whereas a few years ago, a lot of voices would talk about the empowering nature of technology and innovation and how great it was, all that kind of stuff. And a few people point to problems, sure. Whereas now, I think the balance has shifted and there's a lot of people saying, oh, my God, yeah, Silicon Valley, what, what's it doing? It's facilitating all this kind of fake news and privacy and tax avoidance. So regardless of what we would like to be the case, I think there has been a real shift against Silicon Valley. I think that's certainly true. Uh, I think where I would disagree a bit with Jamie is on the causes of it. I think there are a couple of longer-term causes, which I haven't really got time in my introduction to go into any detail, but just to flag up, I think there's a kind of long-term anti-big business sentiment, which sees big business as a problem and destabilising society, perhaps damage, destroying the planet even. There's a kind of anti-technology sentiment. So despite all the kind of excitement about you know, Facebook and smartphones and so on, 
there is, I think, a widespread sentiment in society that technology is a problem and, again, creates all sorts of environmental threats and social instability. But I think the big thing over the last 18 months, which has really kind of caused this big shift over that period, is anti-populism. So I've got these three antis, kind of anti-technology, anti-business, anti-populism, where I think in America you've got the Trump phenomenon. So regardless of what you think about Trump, and I'm certainly no fan of Trump, but there is a real sense among the American elite, I think, that, oh, my God, you know, things are out of control. Basically, our candidate, Hillary Clinton, lost. Uh, you know, how could this possibly happen? Uh, within Europe, there's a real fear of Brexit. You know, the, the, uh, the uh, majority of the British public voted to leave the European Union. They kind of rejected the technocratic elite and its consensus. And I think it's this, rather than any specific technological factor which is fueling this anti-Silicon uh, anti Valley sentiment. And I think that it's really, really problematic. So in the US, for example, you see people from different parts of the political spectrum. You see Steve Bannon of Breitbart, you know, who was a big Trump advisor, uh, talking about the need to uh, regulate and control Silicon Valley. You have Bernie Sanders, supposedly on the left, arguing something very similar. You have debates about how Russia influenced the US presidential election, which I think are ludicrous. I mean, I think on the margins, sure, you know, Russia was maybe like other countries too, trying to have an influence. But to see it as a decisive factor, I think is complete nonsense. But I think the whole, what's happened in the political sphere is really fueling this kind of anti-Silicon Valley sentiment, particularly in relation to social media, Facebook and LinkedIn and all these other kinds of uh, social media, Google, social media networks and so on, uh, search engines. In the, within the EU, you have all of these different technocratic, bureaucratic regulations about controlling, uh, in addition to, to tax avoidance, you know, illegal content online, controlling what's said on the internet, internet. In the UK, you have a discussion, for example, about a green paper. There's a green paper, which is a basically a parliamentary discussion paper, which is talking about the need to be aware of the dangers to young people of social media, so what I think you've got, especially over the last 18 months, is a political elite which senses it's out of control. And in order to do that, it's now saying, well, what we need to do is to regulate the flow of information, regulate new media. So although, I mean, Andrew, I mean, I think, you know, he's perfectly entitled to say Silicon Valley isn't that heavily regulated. Now, my prediction, I'm not advocating this, just to be clear, is it's going, it's going to be much more regulated. That's the direction that things are going in. I don't think that's a good thing, but I think that's what's happening. And I think this raises all sorts of issues. So, you know, we can talk about how wonderful technology is, and I'm a great fan of innovation and what we can do with FaceTime and, and, and that kind of thing. But I think, fundamentally, we've got a big attack on free speech here. That's one of the main dynamics of this anti-Silicon Valley discussion. So, an attack on technology and innovation, which I think is a, a really, really problematic, and we should stand up against, but also a real attack on free speech in terms of what we can say on the internet, what we can do on social media, that kind of thing. So I would say the stakes are very high here. Uh, whatever we think of the leaders of Silicon Valley, you know, we can be critical of them, we can see them as heroes, whatever. I think it's very important to stand up both for innovation, but also to stand up for political freedom and for free speech, which I think is very much part of this debate. Okay, thank you. Okay, um, right, well, thank you, the panel. 
for excellent points. Um, I mean, I'm not going to sum up too much, but I, I sort of see a broad agreement that the, the panel sort of think that silicon graphic, uh, sorry, silicon graphic, showing my age there, <laughs> for the techies amongst the audience. Um, silicon Valley are broadly doing quite good things on, on balance, but there are, for various reasons they are being seen as zeros in some areas, but there is maybe a bit of a debate to be had on exactly what the causes of those are for. And um, Daniel did uh, question uh, one of Ann, uh, Andrew's points, but what I'd like to do is basically open this up to the audience, then any differences or questions you have, we discuss after the first round of questions. So you probably know the deal by now. I'll ask for three or four questions. The panel can answer whichever ones they want in whichever way. Um, so, but all questions are welcome and, and it'll open up the debate wider. So just uh, if you've got a question, just pl stick your hand up now and I'll work, work my way around. Okay. Right, so we've only got, seem to have a few at the front and a few at the back, and I can't see many in the middle, so I'll work across this way at the moment. The gentleman over there, who I think you said you work for a tech company, so... Uh, it, one thing, I don't think we're filming, but it's still easier for people to see. If people can stand up, it'll make things a lot easier. Thank yep, you. sure. Hi, so uh, I did, I worked for Google for seven years up until about a month ago. I'm trying to undrink the Kool-Aid that I drank in that mm. time period. Um, so I, I think you're all raising some excellent points. I think you're all making some great um, points about what it, different ways that are different factors that are leading to this sort of uh, trend against Silicon Valley. I think one thing that I would just um, add in there is I think we are seeing Silicon Valley companies, particularly Google, Facebook, the Big Five, take on roles, increasing roles, um, to privatize what used to be public space. So a good example of this is how we intake news. Um, that used to be in the domain of media. It is now increasingly becoming the domain of social media in a way that does not have the same, uh, same journalistic standards and ethics that traditional media sources have. And that, I think, is starting to see some pushback from the public. I think it's also taking on the role of courts and the way in which we adjudicate, to your point, about uh, issues like what kind of speech is allowed to be put online and not. Um, I worked in a team that their whole job was to essentially adjudicate uh, hundreds of thousands of requests to remove illegal content from Google's products over the course of a single day. Um, and it's quite scary to think that those decisions are being made by people like me who have no judicial training and no um, sort of role in any of the countries that uh, we're, we're getting these requests from. Um, I think the other point is the lack of transparency on this process. Uh, tech companies don't, uh, are not transparent about these policies. We don't uh, give this information out to the public and it's not as accessible as it might be if um, public sector sort of um, uh, governments or other, other sort of uh, entities would have that same role. So I guess my question to you is, given that there is this trend of increasingly privatization of what was traditionally public roles or public space, do you think that the current trend is unwarranted? Do you think that there needs to be any major changes made uh, to that model? Or do you think that this is all okay? Okay, that's great. Thank you. Uh, this gentleman over here. And then if, is it just the one microphone? Yeah, we'll keep that one at the back and then we go to... No, 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 just go to that guy. Yeah, sorry. And yeah, so, um, yeah, or just uh, about Google. One of the things about Google is that um, lots of people know that they've got all the information about you, uh, but they also have all the information about the organisations and uh, people who work for those organisations, the projects that those organisations are starting, the trends of who likes those organisations and is perfectly suited to buy up those organisations and completely and utterly quash 
all competition. Um, they're, they're, you know, they've got the money, they can do that um, and things. However, I'm not actually that do bothered by that. Um, I do think that actually distributed organisations are going to be the solution to that. Uh, we have, um, so, uh, you know, a good example might be uh, distributed Uber. Uh, uh, we'll call it Duba. It's got Duba <laughs> coin that's basically behind Duba. Uh, the software engineers, uh, it's an open source project. They're all paid by Duba coin. They can convert that into their own currencies. Um, and uh, the features of uh, uh, the Duba app will be, uh, 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 you know, come, to, come together by consensus. So basically, uh, just as Bitcoin and Ethereum have forked, uh, so will the features of Duba app. Um, and we'll see that taxi drivers, if they exist in the future, they'll choose a, a fork of Duba, um, and so will the population as a lot, or the consumers at large choose their um, fork of uh, Duba, and I'm sure there'll be a, a consensus about what that Duba is. So I, I think that is the model uh, that will actually uh, unthrown uh, uh, Silicon Valley the centralised uh, si systems. I don't see them particularly going away completely, but um, the major point there is that the reason why we'll all be using distributed apps is because they're cheaper um, and, uh, and because they're democratic in the way that they uh, have the features and, and, and the rest of it. So, um, yeah, although I'm slightly worried at the current, um, uh, uh, you know, the, the, their current dominance, I think going forward it probably won't be too much of a okay. problem. Thank you very much. So we just take this gentleman here, then come back to the panel, and then we'll, we'll uh, take a few more. So Andrew and Daniel mentioned the threat from without for these companies, but I'm wondering about the threat from within, and I'm talking about some of their values. So I was really creeped out with this Google memo guy. So that's the guy who wrote his opinion, basically. Mm -hmm. And not only Google Thank fired him, but also the CEO felt the need to stop his vacation, to cancel his vacation and fly back because apparently someone having a diff diff different opinion was such a critical and such a big issue. So I'm, I'm wondering, can these heroes, because I see them as well as heroes, can they resist this atmosphere, this intellectual atmosphere that Daniel mentioned? And could Silicon Valley resist this idea of humans as vulnerable and this idea that they cannot cope with a memo by a guy who probably no one would know him? And would this signify kind of a, a, a twist and kind of a turn that is irreversible? Okay, thank you. Right, and anybody want to pick up on any of those questions in particular? Yeah. I wanted to dis discuss briefly about the, the news. Um, one, one of the questioners said that social media provides news at, with, with lower standards of journalistic integrity than the mainstream media. Well, let me say, if social media standards are lower than that of the mainstream media, then they are pretty freaking bad, you know? Yeah. So I don't know how you could be worse than, than the mainstream media uh, on this. But I think the good news is, in a, in a relatively you know, free society and free market, all these news services have to compete whether it's the BBC or CNN or Fox News or social media or the New, the New York Times or the London Times or the Guardian, all these different sources of, of news compete. Uh, and, you know, and ultimately, we, the customers, decide what sources we're going we're gonna, to um, you know, go to for the news. And I would, I would hope that we, 
as as uh, customers uh, that we would hold their feet to the fire, whether it's social media or mainstream media or whoever, print media, TV, radio, whatever it is, uh, hold their feet to the fire because their journalistic standards are, are pretty low. Uh, I think I think across the board, uh, uh, generally, and I, I, it's, it's an open secret. I'm in a support of capitalism. It's an open secret. It's been known for decades. The mainstream media leans left heavily. It's pro-socialist, it's anti-capitalist, they are liars on many issues, and I think, you know, I, I, and I think, you know, we're to blame for this if we, if we, let, them get, if we let them get away with it. Uh, and I think competition in general about uh, Silicon Valley, Warren mentioned, you know, tech companies in other countries, in Asia, in, in, in uh, Africa. I think, you know, Silicon Valley has to compete too. And if, uh, if, these, if these companies in other countries do a better job of advancing technology, then Silicon Valley will lose its uh, customer base and, 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 and lose its revenue and lose its, uh, lose its, its power and its, power its influence. Okay. Daniel, you've got something yeah, to well, say, and then I'll come over to you too. Sure. Uh, a couple of points. Uh, I should say I'm a journalist uh, by background, so <laughs> the... Uh, Me but, too. Yeah, we've got more, yeah, but I'm, I'm not here to uh, defend the media as such. In fact, I agree with a lot of, not entirely, but I agree with a lot of what Andrew said, because the mainstream narrative in relation to what's happened to the media is that you had this kind of uh, print media 20, 30 years ago, and now it's been wiped out because of, or severely declined because of the internet, because of a technological shift from paper to online. But I don't, I don't think that's actually true. I mean, there has been a shift, but I don't think that's... That's why the old media has done so badly. I think it's much more that the media has not upheld the notion of editorial independence. So for me, it's not so much that they lean left. It's much more that journalists have given up on the idea of journalistic objectivity. So they've talked about the journalism of attachment, for example. We need to take sides in big conflicts rather than take an objective view. So yes, there have been shifting boundaries, which is what you've talked about, but I think we shouldn't see them... Uh, mainly in technological, uh, in a technological form. I mean, there has been a shift in technology, but there's been a shift which is really not understood, which is that journalists have given up on objectivity. Secondly, the Google memo, memo guy is actually James Damore. And just to check, you're not James Damore, are you? Just to, uh, just, to, just to be clear on that. But, uh, he looks better uh, dressed to me. I'm so sure you're better. I can't remember what he looks like even. But, uh, so he wrote, just for people who aren't familiar with the background... I mean, James Damon wrote an internal memo inside Google which was criticising uh, some of uh, Google's diversity policies. Uh, and then he got fired uh, by Google after a big kind of big public fuss. But I think the thing is, I don't think we should expect Google as a company to have higher standards than any other company. I think it's much more of a political question. Again, we shouldn't just look at these questions in their own terms in terms of what's happening in Silicon Valley. You know, there is a much broader uh, public assumption, both in the US, I think, and in Britain, where more and more things are becoming unsayable. We're not allowed to, to criticise diversity or diversity policies and see it as a problem. We're not allowed to engage in what is called hate speech. Uh, so I think it's much more a political question that those people who hold free speech to be important need to stand up for free speech. It's not that companies like Google or Apple or Netflix or whoever have a particular obligation to do that any more than any other company. It's more that people who believe in those values should stand up for them. Okay, I'm I'm I'm, in, I'm interested. We got onto the the journalism thing because I do. Uh, Jamie got an excellent uh, podcast on the uh, Institute of Ideas uh, 
website where I, I think it, it's not quite related to this, but it's one of your kind of theories is that the, the part of the, uh, the sort of negative press, as it were, of a lot of these companies is sort of tension between um, the traditional uh, yeah. press, etc. And it, so it'd be interesting if you, if yeah. you maybe want to elaborate on that, but it also is connected because you teach journalism as well, Lauren. It'd be interested to know if you see what the others have said. I, um, I, I as, don't actually teach journalism. Oh, I run okay. some masterclasses Master, for The Guardian, okay, yeah. but just that's, that's okay, not really fine. a big, even, big okay, part of what fine. I do. Okay, fine. Yeah, I, th I think, uh, Andrew, I think, you're, I think you're, you're a little too optimistic about the uh, sort of the survival prospects of good, decent journalism on a click advertising-based model online. I mean, I think over the last five years, we've seen quite clearly what's happened. Not to say, I mean, don't let the, the you know, the, 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 the better be the enemy of the good. I'm not saying it was ever perfect, but I mean, I think that the standards have definitely gone downhill. And I also think the destruction of local newspapers as a result of that is, is a massive, massive problem, a massive long-term problem. And I'm not optimistic about it at all. But I do think one of the reasons opinion has turned against Silicon Valley sharply is because most of the newspapers are pissed off that Facebook and Google now account for 85% of every advertising dollar that is spent online and they are very angry that they are losing that revenue and they are taking every opportunity to criticise those companies wherever they can. So you get headlines in the Daily Mail like Google the terrorist's friend because Daily Mail journalists were able to Google how to make a bomb. I mean, it's ridiculous. So there's a war going on at the moment between the mainstream media and the big tech firms over advertising revenue. So it's, you've got to kind of watch quite closely what's being written and why they're writing it. I mean, Silicon Valley, to me, uh, I'm probably maybe the least optimistic about it, perhaps. Um, and I consider myself generally quite optimistic. But it's a massive echo chamber. I mean, anyone that's been there for... I mean, that's part of the problem. An absolute self-belief in their right to, di to disrupt everybody else's economy, society and politics, and everybody else has to play catch-up with them. And I think it's that belief, even where it's quite well-founded, and it is... I mean, I'm not a fan of Ayn Rand, so I, I can see why you love it, but I, I don't particularly like Ayn Rand or where that leads, so I am slightly more worried about that. And maybe that's about a big political vision rather than necessarily just the conduct of those companies. But it's a big echo chamber, which I think has resulted in a certain soft arrogance that maybe the rules don't apply to us in quite the same way. And I think that's what drives some of the frustration. And it's why I think some government pushback is welcome, not to completely stifle all innovation and creativity, but there is an important role for governments to push back against some of this stuff. Um, and one of the reasons for that, I think, is that, yes, productivity is about to explode. I mean, it's going to increase dramatically in the years ahead. But the gains of that productivity, just as they have over the last 30 years, are going to fall to the owners of the technology, which is one of the reasons why we're going to see greater and greater inequality coming in the next 10 years. And people in Silicon Valley will get richer and richer. And the Uber drivers and all the rest of it, if they even exist, will get poorer and poorer. And that is not sustainable in the long term in a democracy. Now, you mentioned the possibility, someone, about blockchain-based applications and how, how yeah, and, and, and the, the prospect of that. And so it is important to separate technology from the behaviour of some venture capital-led Silicon Valley firms. And if we keep putting them together, then we're screwed because we'll all hate all technology and that would be really bad. But 
all the talk about it, and I've written quite a lot about Ethereum and, and blockchain and stuff, there is great prospects there, but I, I just I hear the same language as I heard in the 90s when it was so optimistic, because everyone in the 90s said, oh, it's going to be amazing, and it's going to be distributed and decentralized, and everything's going to be much better. So I'm, I, I understand how the design is different and how hopefully decentralization is designed in, but I still hesitate now because I think, well, we didn't learn the lesson last time. We were so optimistic about how it was going to improve everything. So I'm, I'm slightly less optimistic than you about the prospects of, you know, de Duba and, and other decent. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> yeah. yeah, but it's an exciting thing to pursue, it's definitely. It's an, it's, it's an exciting thing to pursue, and I'm very excited about it. Yeah, just, I, I'm, I'm also thinking about the possible problems. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I wanted to pick up on this point about uh, Silicon Valley companies not being transparent or democratic in, in what they do. Um, uh, I do agree that, um, you know, because they have a, a customer base to kind of keep happy, they have to pay some attention to, to what people think. But um, kind of on the flip side, it worries me very much. Um, I have a degree in politics. I spent several years studying politics. Um, I look at government and I don't see a government that's very transparent or democratic in a lot of ways anymore. So I think it's quite difficult to know who should hold what power in this new terrain. Um, and technology is changing things really, really fast. Um, I think disintermediation and, and distributed organizations have a lot of potential. They definitely, in principle, seem like the, the best kind of solution, the best option, giving people more direct access to influence the, the things that affect their lives. Um, and I think right now, uh, we'd definitely be further away from that as a prospect if it wasn't for the fast-paced kind of competitive innovation that we've experienced in Silicon Valley. However, I share Jamie's concerns that, you know, there's been a lot of talk of things being disintermediated and distributed before, and a lot of the conversation now really needs to be, how do we achieve that? Because it's not a technological problem, it's a cultural problem, you know, to, to really achieve um, and realise that as a vision. Um, I also just wanted to pick up on, on the point about kind of the, the demise of the media. Um, I have to say I, I lost a lot of, uh, a lot of faith um, in the ability of the media to kind of innovate and move forward earlier this year when a Guardian editor told me that they loved the idea but they'd been told they need to try and commission a bit more clickbait than they used to so they wouldn't be commissioning. Um, and I think that's really, really concerning, you know, particularly a title like The Guardian that has, has broken some really important stories um, over the past five years uh, to be, you know, focused on the kind of advertising um, model of the internet um, and to, to see their coverage go in that direction is, is extremely worrying. Um, on the subject of Silicon Valley companies and their undue influence, um, I think it was incredible to read this week, I don't know if anybody else caught the story, but that um, Cambodia's media basically lost half of their reach overnight, uh, thanks to uh, them operating a lot through Facebook pages now. That's where Cambodians go to, to get their news. Facebook decided to push out um, an experimental uh, sort of update that changed how Facebook pages uh, distribute to their audiences uh, and all of these Cambodian media outlets just were completely powerless to reach their audiences. Um, I think that's incredibly concerning uh, and they should definitely be held to account, Facebook, for that kind of action given the influence um, that they have. On the flip side to that, I'd also like to just point out that Google and Facebook are putting a lot of money into journalism right now, into funding sort of independent journalistic pursuits. Um, and, you know, that might be small crumbs compared to their undue influence, but I think it's still worth pointing out and being aware of that um, they are sort of 
do, doing a bit to try and help the media innovate in a way that I think it's failed to do on its own. That's great. Okay, we'll come out to the audience again. Um, yeah, we'll start down here <coughs> with this lady here, and there was two at the back from the last session, so we'll try and pick those up and then... So if you could take the microphone to the back, please. Okay, thank you. Um, my name's Julia Hobsbawm. I write okay. and think about connectedness and its discontents. Um, I think there's been a lot more hero than zero on the panel. A lot of what I would call silico evangelism, defending in some shape or form technology, technology companies, innovation. And I, I think there is a backlash going on, and I think it's a welcome backlash. And that's because technology is, is not, in fact, improving everything all the time, everywhere. And even publications like uh, MIT Technology Review are now running articles going, we're missing an important piece of the puzzle. And what is that important piece of the puzzle? It's called the human. We are running a system, in in, whether it's Silicon Valley or whether it's in Silicon Fen, it, that doesn't really bother me. What bothers me is that there is an obsession, not just with profit, okay, we know that, not just with politics, not just with privacy, but with a sort of outsourcing, wholesale outsourcing of the way human beings live to mass scale. It seems to me, and I am absolutely no Luddite, I live my life embedded on, as we all do, out of necessity, technology, but the reality is that we are not built for the scale and the speed and the, and the sort of aggrandized ambition that's going on here. You know, automation, the cars, hello, really humanity needs this more than anything else. I'm all for the medical advances in AI. I'm all for all of that. But this energy now that's going into trying to replace the human you see it with Siri, which is ridiculous, Alexa, all of these things. The energy is trying to outsource the human, and I don't get why, and I think that is far more the issue that we should be addressing. And there isn't really much balance on the panel there. Okay, well, thank you for that. Um, the panel can prepare themselves to reply to that one way or the other as they want to. Um, there was a couple of people at the back that... Uh, the one, the person on the on, on my um, right, yes. Have you got a microphone? Sorry. Um, yeah, just the uh, panel's opinions. You're complaining about, you know, the big uh, tech companies controlling everybody's privacy. What about when they start controlling the money supply? I mean, we're going. I mean, this week they've withdrawn all the pound coins. They've issued new ten pound notes. What happens when they say, right, the Bank of England says? It's just give everybody a credit card with their fingerprint, their photograph, their DNA, their national insurance number, and you take that to the uh, local petrol station. So what happens when the um, tech companies go fully cashless, the whole world goes completely cashless, who controls the money supply? Okay. So I can't see very well here. Was there someone else with a hand up at the back? Yes. Um, just over... To, yeah, if you can let that person... Then we'll come back to the panel after that. I, sorry, I just thought it was quite interesting... So can you speak up slightly? Sorry, I, I just think it is quite interesting that the, the loss of self through, the, through actually just a very simple idea of the screen and, and the kind of centralising of our lives, of, you know, our, our news, our <coughs> recreation, um, our, our finance, it's all through a very small portal. Um, 
I just I think that's quite interesting, and, and the fact that there's a sort of dependency that is built up on that, um, and whether that would that's going to continue or how we're really going to address it. Okay, thanks. Right. So, does anyone on the panel want to <coughs> take uh, Julia's point? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. I mean, I, keep it relatively short so we can fit everyone in. I think the criticisms expressed here of Silicon, of Silicon Valley are ridiculous at best. Uh, the technology has clearly enhanced the lives of billions of people, made us much more productive, uh, created vast amounts of wealth, and the bottom line is some people who, who th may think they're elitists can condemn this, but the bottom line is this these technologies are popular. Billions of human beings making their own free choices in, in relatively free countries, or at least with, a, with enough freedom to make this choice, are choosing to use Google, which is enormously beneficial on the information ages, enormously beneficial. They're choosing to use Google. They're choosing to use Facebook. I mean, I'm a writer. I advertise my books and lectures on, on Facebook. I mean, uh, the, the, the technology has made our lives so much better. Siri is magnificent. I'm in love with Siri. I'd marry her if, if, <laughs> if, I, if I could. Siri gets me places that I wouldn't be able to find otherwise. To, to criticize Siri is just, I mean, it's bizarre. It's abso absolutely, absolutely Sorry, can we bizarre. Just let the um, yeah, thank you. Uh, Siri gets me places that easily that otherwise would be very difficult to get, get to. And, and think about this. It saves me time and time is all we have all right so the technology is magnificent and anybody who it's, it's life enhancing anybody who criticizes it is just flat wrong <laughs> okay well that's quite clear uh, would, would, would Laura, would you like um, to yeah, maybe I'd defend, like to, would you say that I'd, I'd like to pick up on that yeah, point, sure. certainly. Uh, I, I really don't agree with you, Julia. Automation, in my mind, is completely inevitable. We can delay it, but we can't stop it. And any effort that goes into delaying it is wasted effort, in my view, because we, we just cannot stop it. It's here. It's happening. Um, I recently read a World Economic Forum report that formed a really excellent uh, picture of what qualities humans will need in the face of robots in the workplace by the year 2020. And the kind of TLDR is we can look forward to humans doing much more meaningful work in the future because we are going to be able to use our problem-solving abilities, our creativity, our emotional intelligence as a way of creating value in the world rather than doing the kind of uh, more uh, automatable tasks that robots are very well suited to. However, in the face of that, the real challenge to my mind becomes about reskilling populations and making sure that people aren't left behind, as so many people have been in the face of globalization. And the only thing I can really say about that right now is that governments are failing. Governments need to be doing far more, far quicker to keep up with the pace of change and to make sure that the inequality gap uh, is not widening as at the rate that it is. Um, I think we're in a real mess right now, but to kind of say that you know, uh, we should battle against automation or to imply that, I think, is, is fruitless. I should point out there is another session after this on automation almost in particular, which uh, I'm not saying don't discuss it now, but just to let people know that this discussion can carry on. On after uh, Jamie, and then yeah, Jamie. I mean it's uh, but pe people who 
usually stand to benefit from automation and AI are always the ones that say it's inevitable and also that it's amazing and we'll have amazing, brilliant, perfect jobs and we'll be creative and innovative in the future. And I just don't think that's what's going to happen. I really don't. I think what's going to happen is we're going to create enormous monopolies, the likes of which we've never seen before, and we'll have a barbell-shaped economy with some very great creative jobs at the top and a load of crap jobs at the bottom. And it's not going to be pretty. It's going to look like San Francisco on crack, and that, which is what San Francisco is already on. Um, so I'm, I'm far more nervous. I mean, I, I agree. I, I agree. There's, good, there's a huge role for governments to play in trying to manage this transition and help people. But what they're going to do is say, "Oh, everyone can be, a, a, you know, all those drivers that have lost their jobs and the lorry drivers that they can retrain as web developers and ridiculous <laughs> ideas like that that are just completely out of touch with reality." I mean, so it's, it's uh, I don't want to sound too doom and gloom because there are going to be clearly amazing things coming, and I think we should try and embrace it and be optimistic about the wonderful opportunities that it presents. But be under no illusions that I mean, I think. Yeah, the people during the last industrial revolution who were told, oh, you know, these machines are going to create great jobs for you and ended up working 12 hours a day in shit factories where life expectancy went through the floor and it took 60 years for it to return again. So, I mean, I, I'm a little bit more, as you can tell, a little bit more pessimistic than you are. And, 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 and while there's been huge amounts of benefits for millions of people, I mean, studies, for example, of Facebook have found that users are more depressed I mean, it's not that it's an unmitigated good all of the time. You know, total connectivity is not necessarily a wonderful thing. We all use it, but that's partly because increasingly we don't have choice because there aren't many other options for us. And to conduct our professional and personal lives, we have to use these platforms now. So I don't think it's quite as free a choice as you think when people, unfortunately, you know, it's a fact of life now, but that has limited yeah, the, the, ch the chances for people to do something different. Okay, I'd like. Can, to... can I really briefly just pick okay. up on one point? Um, I recently actually read and was very surprised to read um, about the successes under Obama at reskilling miners as coders. Um, so just as, as a point to make, on a small scale, there have been some really interesting success stories. I think the real question is, how do we scale that? And is that a realistic thing that could affect enough lives to mitigate the consequences of uh, kind of the coming age of automation? But, okay. yeah. Well, I mean, this is actually, the, in many ways, the subject of my last book. Uh, and I think the problem is, I think all of the panellists are taking what is actually a much broader question about the economy and productivity and focusing very much on Silicon Valley, which is only a small subset of that discussion. Uh, when Julia Hobsbawm was talking, she actually reminded me of, there's a quite well-known book uh, by E.F. Schumacher called Small, Small is Beautiful. It was published, I think, in 1974. Who argued very similarly to you that uh, the problem is that we have big technology, it's not on a human scale, humans becoming alienated. Obviously, he didn't talk about Siri because he was writing in 1974, but it's an old argument, which doesn't in and of itself, of course, mean it's wrong. Uh, but I think the problem is that the, the reality, if you look at the productivity stats, and I'm a real kind of economics productivity nerd, the real problem with productivity in the West, although now you can see it even in the emerging world, uh, productivity growth is getting slower and slower and slower. It's not the case that you have this fast-paced, fast-moving technology across the board. On the contrary, you compare the 70s to the 80s to the 90s and so on, and the trend is very much downwards. If anything, Silicon Valley is the exception to the rule. So it's not that I'm in love with Siri. I don't want to marry Alexa. I'm not really particularly concerned <laughs> about them. But I am very worried 
uh, that productivity growth is slowing because I think that has real damaging human consequences. Because I think where we have had real economic growth and productivity growth, like in China, humans have benefited. It's not just a kind of nasty kind of economic GDP, you know, statistical aggregate. Humans have benefited enormously where you've had a lot of economic growth, as in China. But the problem in the West is we've had many years of economic stagnation. The economy hasn't been growing, or where it's been growing, it's been growing, growing very slowly. And that has very damaging human consequences. So I would say if we take a humanist perspective, we want what is good for humanity, we need more technology, we need more economic growth, and we need more prosperity. That's the conclusion I would draw. Okay, that's great. Obviously, this could go on. Unfortunately... We haven't had Hyperloop in, uh, in, installed yet, and Jamie's <laughs> got to get back to Came, uh, not Cambridge, Cardiff early, so he's going to have to leave in about five minutes. So we're going to modify the end of this. I'm going to ask for maybe two short questions. Let Jamie and the panel come back, and then Jamie may sum up briefly, and then he's going to have to shoot off and cycle. Not all the <laughs> way to Cardiff, but he's going to cycle anyway. Uh, so this, this gentleman here. Just a short question, if you can manage sure, that. Um, my question has to do with the fact that today uh, um, Silicon Valley or technology in general contributes you know, massive amounts to the um, global economy. Uh, so much of it is concentrated over almost two trillion is concentrated in the Bay Area of California as, as you um, um, talked about. The fact is that because of that concentration of wealth and because it's all kind of knowledge generated, it's not natural resources, it's not manufacturing, agriculture, it's knowledge generated. Uh, there, is an, there is a hubris that exists in, in, in the tech sector, Silicon Valley in particular, that um, gives the, um, the, the entrepreneurs and the, and the companies there uh, a sense of um, kind of omnipotence and uh, understanding and an understanding that they have the, uh, the way of solving humanity's biggest crisis. So to what degree do you agree with that, and do you think that's something that we should really be worried about, and can government really do anything about that? Okay. Um, that a again, question. just a, if you can manage just a question, that would be... Uh, Nico McDonald, there was two ideas I wanted to suggest might be a factor here. One is about agency. And when we talk about tech, which itself is a meaningless category, we talk about robots taking our jobs or AI, replacing this and that. And we give the technology agency. And then to blame is Silicon Valley because it creates the technology, obviously not all of it. If we actually looked at, you know, it's not robots that take our jobs, our boss that sacks us or makes us redundant, then the blame for our ills might be more widely distributed because we've got that agency thing the wrong way around. We tend to blame Silicon Valley. And then I think also Silicon Valley is to blame itself in another way, which is the concept of solutionism which is a concept termed by a guy called Evgeny Moratsov that people might know of. And he wrote a book called Just Click Here uh, about the idea that everything can be solved by technology, government, social crises, employment. And because they're so hubristic in that way, they are bringing blame on themselves because they think that everything can be solved by technology. And you know, when it can't, when people find out it can't, then there will be resentment. Okay. Thanks. Mm. Thank you. Right. So, Jamie... Uh, yeah, if to you want to leave, it's up to you when you leave. But if you, if you want to, uh, <laughs> as we said earlier, the rest of the panel can then talk about. Yeah, you thanks. Sorry, I've got to leave a tiny bit. <laughs> um, so if you want to reply to the hubris yeah. points and, yeah. and, and mention anything else you want okay. to, and then yeah. then we'll carry on. Sorry, sorry, I've got to leave slightly early, and I've enjoyed very much the panel so far. Um, 
I, I, I agree with your, your, your point. I mean, I think so, some of the firms, because they, they, their, their social mission gives them license to break the rules in the name of the greater good. So because Airbnb is creating this wonderful paradise where every city can be your home, um, I think it makes them believe that they can sue their own city over a, a ridiculous claim, in effect, to refuse to release data about some of their users uh, and try and claim protection under the CDA in 1996, which they lost eventually. And I think some of that's well, but I think some of that's well intentioned. I mean, there is a genuine belief in the. This is the thing I often say to people. I don't think they're using this techno utopianism as a cover for naked capitalism. I think most of them are true believers in this, and there's reason for them to be like that. But it does give them license sometimes, I think, to overreach in that way. And so I think it's a very good summary. Um, take the point from Nico. Agree with that. Very interesting. And I think the biggest. In the next 10 years or so, I think the biggest political issue of the day is going to be how political parties deal with technology, whether it's the regulation of it or monopoly, monopolies or artificial intelligence or enforcing the law, which is going to get more and more difficult, or blockchain. This is going to be the key dividing line in politics. And at the moment, I don't see any of the political parties here thinking about it. None of them mentioned... I mean, I think the Lib Dems mentioned artificial intelligence in their last referendum, but the one before that, no one did. But I think two elections' time, these questions will be as important as immigration, health, or whatever is now. So it's, it's extremely important that the parties start coming up with some ideas. Or maybe there's new parties. Or maybe there's new parties. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's great. So you off now, Jamie? I've got to say, Thanks yeah. very much. I recommend you all listen to Jamie's uh, podcast on the Institute of Ideas website. So, do we, we just have a brief reply? Does, if anyone wants to respond yeah. to anyone else briefly, or yeah, come wanna, back on the same questions? Yeah, Paul, I want to I want to make a point here that I think individual we have, we need to remember human beings have one of these. Right? We have uh, a mind, we have and the capacity to reason. And I think what's generally true is that an indiv individuals, whether they're you know, either gender, any race or nationality or tribe, generally know what's best for them better than anybody else does, better than I do, better than Facebook does, and certainly better than the government does. And I think the, I think the reason why some of these uh, Silicon Valley companies are so popular, even with the criticism, they're still enormously popular, is because of the way they enhance the lives of millions of individuals. I mean, Google is amazing. <laughs> I mean, I'm a writer and a researcher. It would have been so difficult. It saves me so much time to be able to, to, be able to Google material or, or find the books on Amazon. I know that's not a Silicon Valley company, but still, I love Amazon. Find the books on, on, on Amazon, often, often through Google. Uh, Facebook, you know, I can understand. I'm a little more mixed on that, but I don't think... Uh, you know, I, I don't think that, that people, somebody said, you know, they, we need to be on Facebook. Nobody needs to be on Facebook. Yeah, I mean, I lived very well for many years, long, long before Facebook. I'm on Facebook. I use it to advertise. I, you know, and by the way, people, you know, post on Facebook a lot of things from, from the mainstream media. A lot of newspaper, you know, articles are posted on Facebook. I, I get my news 
through Facebook, but from actually from, from the mainstream media. So people make their choices because in their judgment, these technology companies provide goods and services that benefit their life, and I think they're right. Okay. Daniel? Uh, Got anything to say on the hubris argument? Uh, well, I did want to slap Jamie off behind his back, which I did tell him I would do, so <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. His ears are burning uh, as he's cycling along. Yeah, him. absolutely, because, I mean, he, he was arguing, as he argues on the podcast uh, that you mentioned, Sorry. which is certainly well worth listening to, that a big driving force, not the only force in his view, but a big driving force behind the anti-Silicon Valley sentiment is the fact that the mainstream media and their advertising revenues have been squeezed by... Uh, Google and Facebook and so on. Uh, and I think at best that's very much a secondary factor. I mean, just to remind people, to me, there's a kind of anti-technology sentiment, there's anti-big business sentiment, and even more now there's this kind of anti-popular sentiment. So I would draw the opposite conclusion from him. His conclusion is, well, uh, the government needs to come in to regulate things more. Whereas I would say, although I'm not a kind of, I'm, I'm certainly not a kind of Randy and Ayn Rand uh, kind of person, but uh, but I would say in this context that the drive to regulate and control what is said by people uh, on Facebook and in the internet more generally is very problematic because it is an attack on free speech. Uh, and I think, although it's very difficult to predict what's going to happen in the next 10 years, uh, I think, as far as we can tell, I mean, you know, who knows what might come up as an issue, but I think democracy and free speech they're going to be probably, the, as far as we can say, the key free, key political issues over the next few years. Okay. Lauren? You're scribbling away there, so I, I am indeed. Um, so, yeah, I think that um, a lot of the... Uh, I think one of the most interesting kind of things that has come up in this whole discussion um, is this idea of, of the inequality um, that we're facing um, uh, and in a way that the Silicon Valley companies have exacerbated that simply through their prevalence um, and I think it's really going to take uh, a mix of companies, governments and people uh, to define a future that we all actually want and to come back to Julia here's point I think that uh, the human connection element is important um, I think that the kind of future thinking on a lot of these issues needs to be uh, hyper-local and global um, decision-making and ideas that are driven by both local communities face-to-face -face and also the global connections that technology um, allows and, and facilitates. Um, so I think it's, uh, it's very much a, a case of any of us could be coming up with the ideas that to our particular community, whether that's the street that we live on or the city that we live in uh, or the country that we live in, could really define how all of this technology and all of these big companies go forward. Um, and I think it all starts there. Um, we should be thinking about the, the kind of connections and, and relationships we want to have through and because of and via technology um, and, and really be fighting for that. And I really hope as well, um, as Jamie pointed out, that uh, political parties begin to pick up these issues or that new political parties actually form around them. Um, I've been pretty impressed by uh, some of the work of the Pirate Party around the world, who are one of few political organisations who are really um, engaged with uh, the realities of technology um, and what might be important to us as individuals going forward. Okay, thank you. I mean, I'm not sure if I'm correct. Is it the Five Star Movement in Italy? I think they were pretty successful in how they used <coughs> the new platforms for building up a, a party there. Well, maybe I've got that wrong. Anyway, we've got ten minutes, so if there's anybody who's got any questions they want to ask, we'll take them, and then for the last five minutes, we'll just have your 
final comments and try and find. One thing I'm interested in, and maybe this is between um, <coughs> Daniel and Andrew, I'm not convinced that just enhancing life actually increases productivity. So maybe that's something we can discuss as, as well as part of the thing. So anyway, uh, how many people, can you put your hands right, or stand up actually. If you stand up, then I'm more likely to see you. Okay, so we've got two guys here. So whichever, who wants to go first? Is there anyone else who's got their hands? Yeah. Okay. So just carrying on the AI thread, I, um, I recently got involved in a pretty acrimonious online discussion with some people at Mould University in response to some research being done there, quote unquote, on embedding social justice values into AI systems. Uh, I was pretty much the only person, seemingly, who was holding his hand up and saying this might not go too well. And uh, I just want, you know, so there is active work being done into embedding political ideology into AI systems, given the, as Jamie mentioned, the echo chamber nature of a lot of these tech firms. How do you feel about that? That's a good question. And there was another person over here. Okay. Um, yeah, I was just wondering. Um, so you said that. Um, uh, the productivity of Silicon Valley has gone down, um, uh, but they still enhance life. But I was just wondering because the um, the triviality of the products produced by Silicon Valley has be been increasing dramatically. Like, look at the iPhone X; doesn't really uh, introduce anything new. So I was just wondering, like, what's your take on that? And um, do you think it's concerning? And is that one of the main reasons why Silicon Valley isn't seen as a, like isn't like appreciated as much anymore? Okay. Uh, in some, is there any? There is another. Yep. So good. Hi. I'd just like to hear from the other speakers about the free point, the free speech point that keeps coming up, um, especially with uh, YouTube demonetizing uh, people. I've heard that happen now and again. And how you think this could be solved? Like, is this something where the government should step in, or should alternative providers come in who say we're not going to ban anyone for anything? Or how do you see that being solved in the future? Right, last chance if anyone's got a... Ah, OK. Quick one, yep. So I feel a little weird asking this because um, I, I'm someone who did deal with regulation at Google. But would you agree, particularly Andrew, that um, regulation can achieve certain social good uh, for private tech companies? And particularly I'm thinking of data protection as a great example of this, where there is no incentive for tech companies to do anything about deletion or... Um, accountability for data protection until a regulator steps in and encourages or incentivizes them to do so. Uh, would you agree that that is a good example of regulation, or do you think that any regulation at all on these companies? Well, what is, do you mean by data protection? Uh, like uh, what what data companies like Google, Facebook, etc. keep about you with how they use it, um, okay. disclosing to users when they can delete it and what they have. Okay, thank well, you. Is it is it? Can I answer this question? Uh, yes, yeah, if that is are there's that's it, okay, right, so we are going to wind up now, so that is the last question. So, yes, if you want to quickly take that first. Well. And also, if you've got any overall summing up yes, points. Yes, I have some, well. some point okay. for you, Dr. Reeves. Um, but, uh, I, no, I understand the concern about privacy, and um, Jamie was making that point. I, I absolutely agree with the, the, the deeper concern for me is that I'm much more scared about the government having my data than Facebook.
or Google. So I'm not, I'm not sure what you know the, what the what the solution to this is. So this this is something that you know I'm not a tech guy. I'm just telling not to make excuses, just to be honest. I have to think about this. What's the solution to, to the privacy issue? Because there, there, there really is an issue, but there's a, there's a danger in, in, in the tech companies. And then to me, there's a much bigger danger from the government, because the government could do things to me that you know, Facebook or Google cannot. Uh, so just to answer, to answer your question from, from before, Paul, about the productivity uh, increase, I think, you know, from the technology, I mean, just think of you know, white-collar workers who used to work on typewriters, you know, now working on computers. I think that certainly uh, enhances productivity. For many people, having a smartphone and being able to work while they're in transit, uh, you know, so I was coming over here from New York the other night, and I was able to, you know, uh, in the airport or on the plane, I was able to Google, I do, I do love Google. I was able to Google, you know, and get, and get any, any, any uh, you know, large amounts of information that otherwise would have been wasted time regarding, I mean, I could have watched the movie, but I mean, regarding productivity, it would have been, uh, it would have been uh, wasted time. So I think there's any number of ways that the technology enhances uh, people's productivity. And again, it saves us time. And, and t at the end, in the end, time is all we have. And I could, uh, as a writer, I could, you know, I could research online and get and get work done more more quickly than I used to be able to do, and have more leisure time to go see my daughter, or go to the gym, or, you know, or, or go to the movies, or go out on a date, you know, or, or, or do. And by the way, uh, people mentioned the human connection, which um, uh, I, I absolutely agree with. But Skype and Facebook, and you know, I'm, I'm, I mean, uh, FaceTime. There's such good technologies for keeping in touch with people when you when you when you're away from home for keeping the your 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 loved ones your, your closest friends your family members you know very you know very close to, to you when you're thousands of miles from home I think that it, what, it, what it always comes down to okay. is people's personal values and how they're going to use the technology. Okay, Lauren, do you want to sum up? Yeah. So um, really, really briefly, the idea of ideology being embedded in AI I find terrifying. Um, I think. <laughs> I think that uh, new forms of governance are needed uh, in order to sort of avoid that altogether or at least to make sure that it's fundamental principles we really do all agree on that are going to be programmed in. Um, so just to very briefly address that point because I'm, I'm very aware we're running out of time. Um, and the point from over here, um, I think when companies like Apple begin to make uh, incremental moves forward instead of revolutionary ones, um, they're probably about to be overtaken by new players. They're losing their dominance. They're losing their monopoly. And I think that's kind of what makes tech so exciting is that a, a company can lead for 10 or 15 years and then just find themselves completely demolished by a new player with a better idea. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, I'd really just like to leave you with one thought. Um, Silicon Valley has really thrived on the manufacturing capabilities of China. Lives in China have been improved hugely by fast economic growth. But now I think we're entering a new era in which Chinese companies are beginning to take a piece of the global pie itself. Um, and it really is the case that Silicon Valley's days are numbered um, as the world leader in, in sort of realizing the future through technology. Um, anybody who's been to Shenzhen will know that um, the, the people who used to put together Apple products in the factories of China now can make far superior products than Apple themselves. And that's going to have a huge impact in the next five or ten years. Great, thanks. And Daniel, I'll leave it to you to find this. Yeah, well, I'll mainly focus on this guy in the middle of the question he asked because he does express, I mean, there are some confusions about basic categories which are worth trying to untangle. So very quickly, I mean, 
Productivity, you can measure it in different ways, but basically it's how much is produced in an hour, say, by an individual. And the higher productivity is, I mean, Andrew's completely right about time, uh, the more productivity is, the more affluent we can be, and also the more free time we can have in principle. So, in principle, rising productivity is a very good thing. What I said was, was not that productivity is falling, but if you take the economy as a whole, the average for the economy as a whole, the rate of growth is falling. So, you know, it might have been 4% in the 1970s, these aren't real figures, but roughly, you know, 4% in the 1970s, 3% in the 1980s, 2% in the 1990s, and so on. So the rate, despite all the excitement about Silicon Valley, the rate of productivity growth is falling, and I think that's a problem. And part of that is because the new technologies that we do have aren't being that usefully uh, used. So if you're uploading loads of cat pictures on Facebook, you are using a new technology, but you're not really raising productivity. Now, it's fine. If it gives people enjoyment to upload cat pictures on Facebook, that's fine. I'm not against that. They can do that. But it doesn't raise productivity. So where we're talking about new technology, we need to also find ways to apply it in ways that does uh, increase productivity as well as uh, increasing uh, human communication. So I think one side of this debate is prosperity, using technology to improve and increase prosperity. And I think the attack on Silicon Valley risks undermining that. And the second thing, which I'm not going to go into any more, but I have focused on in my remarks, is freedom. The attack on Silicon Valley, in many ways, is an attack on freedom. And in that respect, I think it's very important to stand up for Silicon Valley. Okay, that's great. Um, and a good place then. So, uh, <laughs> give a pause.